HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about the food policy issues that impact all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am excited because I have chefs on the show, and as a show about food policy, I don't get to do that as much as some of the other shows here on Heritage Radio Network, and they are here because we're going to talk about the roles, of, the role of chefs in food policy. Chefs, of course, have always been tastemakers and leaders in helping to shape our understanding of what to eat, but increasingly, they are playing a more prominent role in the conversation about how to fix our broken food system. So, um, of course, we have some very obvious leaders in that role. There's Tom Colicchio, um, and maybe the embodiment of this is the White House chef and executive director of Let's Move, Sam Cass. And joining me today are two other chefs who have embraced the role of chef as change agent. So first, let me introduce Michael Levitin, who is the owner and chef of Lumiere and Area 4 in the Boston area, and also an eight-time James Beard Foundation Award nominee. He also recently concluded a term as chair of the Chef's Collaborative Board, and that's a national organization that promotes sustainable food. He's joining us via phone from Boston, I think. Hello, Michael. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for being here. And let me also uh, introduce Evan Hanscore. He is the chef at Egg Restaurant here in Brooklyn and also an alumnus of the James Beard Foundation's Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change and a member of the Chef Action Network. So I actually first met Evan years ago at a fundraising dinner for a school garden and food literacy program that was founded by my sister, Jenny Kessler. And I think, Evan, that you were volunteering that night, like everyone else at Egg, to help fundraise for that school garden program. So that was years ago, and it's, um, I think it seems like you've, you've carried on. So I want to, I guess, thank you for that night, and then also for joining me here in the yeah, studio thank you. today. So it's great to have you both. And... Before we talk about um, policy and how it 
ties into your work. I want to, I think, just start at the beginning and hear what got you into working in food and chefing in the first place. And, Michael, I'll start with you. Um, you know, I think I had worked in some delis in high school um, and thought, oh, my God, I would never want to do this. Um, but in taking some time off from college, um, I found that, you know, sitting at a desk was really not for me and uh, went back to the only other way I knew how to make a living, which was, which was cooking. And, you know, somehow coming at it the second time, um, it was a lot more exciting. I don't know if you've read the, the opening chapters of uh, Kitchen Confidential, but there was a lot of that to it. Um, combining that with, you know, a, a learning curve that was uh, straight up. Right. In terms of, you know, and I was able to apply a lot of the things that I've been studying in college, um, you know, whether it was chemistry or physics or biology or psychology and economics and things like that. Um, and so, you know, the ability to put all that with a creative and physical element uh, seemed to really um, do it for me the second time around. That is very interesting, and also you studied a lot of different things than me in college. <laughs> I don't know that I would what application my um, literature and political science classes would would have had. But um, let me turn it to you, Evan, and hear from you. How did you get started? Yeah, I had a I guess somewhat similar experience in that the first kitchen I worked in uh, was not the most inspiring place. It was it was fun. It was in New Orleans, basically making po' boys. Um, but it, it wasn't a place that inspired me uh, to pursue food as a career. Um, although when I graduated um, from Tulane, I ha went to a restaurant that was extremely inspiring. Another one of those chefs you mentioned who have become policy leaders, Michelle Nishan, uh, had a restaurant in Westport, Connecticut, uh, near the town where I grew up. And when I went into work there, it was a, you know, a, a totally different experience. We were bringing in whole animals to break down, and there was a farmer's market in the in the parking lot, and I was encouraged to, you know, read books like, uh, you know, Slow Food Manifesto and um, Omnivore's Dilemma. And as I started to uh, read and learn more about that side of the food world, uh, I became increasingly excited by the possibility uh, that working with food might not only offer me a, a chance to, like, feed people and, and do something creative um, and physically satisfying, but be involved in... Uh, basically an industry that touched on a lot of things that I felt were really important aside from food. Um, so that was kind of how I, I got hooked um, and ended up sticking with it. So it sounds like for you, having that job at the dressing room was, was it, it was probably always interlinked, the idea of how your work as a chef actually intersected with broader issues and yeah, societal issues. Yeah, and in a way I was, I was lucky. Um, I think it was good to see the the kind of what you might think of as the standard side of the food world first uh, to have an appreciation for how different uh, the dressing room was. But um, I was lucky in that food was and cooking was uh, from the very beginning um, tied to uh, action and change and, and larger issues uh, surrounding what we were actually cooking um, on a day-to-day -day basis. We, you weren't there just to think about um, how your burger was cooked. You wanted to think about where it came from and, and what it meant to be serving that cut of meat, et cetera, et cetera. And definitely led me down a, a long and extremely um, complicated road yeah. of thinking about food <laughs> policy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you could, we could go on and on with that question of what you yeah. need to be thinking about while you're cooking. So, Michael, um, tell us how, you know, what was it that got you first thinking about your you know, what as a chef you, you should be thinking about that was beyond the kitchen? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting because I had a very similar experience um, when I started cooking seriously in the, in the late 80s in San Francisco. 
and that, you know, when I learned to cook, there was no such thing as sustainability as applied to food. You know, but it was just that if you wanted to be the best chef, you needed the best ingredients. And once you started searching for those, you, you know, and got into the backstory, um, you realized that, oh, you know, we need to be taking better care of the land and we shouldn't be fishing this way. And, oh, my gosh, they really raise animals like that? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I you know, uh, like Evan, I feel very fortunate to have seen it from the beginning and to... It's just been part and parcel of doing this from almost from day one. Um, you know, I became much more active uh, in the movement um, maybe eight or nine years ago when the uh, Seafood Watch cards right. uh, sort of first came out. And, you know, being a uh, native New Englander at that point, there wasn't much on there that you could, um, you could theoretically eat. Um, but that was, you know, very different from my day-to-day experience where I was, you know, able to, uh, I had direct relationships with some fishermen and, you know, w- there were people who I felt were doing things the right way. Um, and, you know, I didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater in, in terms of, you know, cod or anything else. Um, so you're and, saying that they were, they were um, in the red zone, according to Seafood Watch, but you kind of knew people who were... Right, but if, if, right. so if you have, you know, certainly their, their, their cod was and, and still is uh, and ought to be in the red zone, but there were, within that, within that red zone, there were people who were, you know, hook and line fishing for cod. Um, if we did not, and it occurred to me that if we did not protect them, those folks doing things the right way, um, the only people that we're going to have left were people doing it the wrong way. Um, and that, to me, was sort of a natural extension of the, the, the Alice Waters argument of, you know, when she was asked, uh, do you buy local or do you buy organic from, you know, 3,000 miles away? And her response is, buy local. Um, if you make the local guy successful, then perhaps you can convince them to go organic somewhere down the road. Um, but if you don't support them, they're going to go away. That land goes into development, and it's never, it's never back into, um, it's never back as farming again. Yeah, it's really interesting, you know. And there, there's that goes partially to that aspect of sustainability, the financially sound aspects of sustainability, which um, I think you often hear chefs articulating and talking about. Um, so, Michael. Maybe that's a good segue into the work of um, Chefs Collaborative, and maybe you could right. talk about your experience as the chair there and the goals of the organization and how it's evolved over time. Right. So the, the, the organization was founded, you know, 21 years ago by a group of just, you know, unbelievably uh, forward-thinking chefs who, who decided that, hey, we need to bring awareness to this issue. Um, and, and one of them was know, Michelle I, Nishan, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, on a beach in Hawaii. Um, and uh, so the... Where all you know, great they, ideas they, are born. <laughs> so, sorry, what was that? I was just saying where all great ideas are born. Yeah, beaches. absolutely. <laughs> in fact, I, you know, I, I probably am in need of some new ideas. So. <laughs> Vacation time. I think time. we all are. Right. Um, you know, the, the organization's exists to, um, you know, reform the food system through um, networking and education primarily. Um, the idea being that, you know, look, we as chefs have a, a bully pulpit uh, at our disposal every day. Um, our menu, our restaurants, 
um, our kitchens, and that you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, we are sort of tastemakers, um, and uh, certainly over the past few years, you know, with the the advent of some reality television and some other stuff, you could make the argument that at least some of us have become or have achieved rock star st- rock star status. Yes, yeah, and we're going to be um, saying chef star, chef star yeah. status. Hmm. Great. That's so exciting. Um, that, that being said, you know, the, we, the organization over the past uh, few years has really, has really grown, especially as we've tried to take sustainability out of the small, you know, chef-owned restaurant and really move it into the, the, uh, the broader spectrum um, and really trying to create change at scale as opposed to just in, you know, the little, little restaurants like mine. So it's you know, like I can a, reach a, I can reach a few hundred people a day, but if we can get, you know, the Sodexos and Compasses and Cisco's of the world on board, we're talking about, or even Chipotle, which feeds a million people a day. Um, you know, if we get organizations like that doing uh, or making changes that are more towards a more sustainable system, then we've really achieved something. It's interesting to hear you say that because it sounds like an evolution from the chef as messenger storytelling kind of role that I think has been extremely important in developing a broader consciousness um, among American eaters, but to moving the supply chain and the role of procurement. Are there things that uh, during your time as the chair of Chefs Collaborative you're especially proud of in that regard? You know, I, I think you brought up a very interesting point about the position of chefs. You know, we are uniquely positioned along the proverbial food chain um, in that we, you know, face forward to our customers, um, and yet we also face backwards to our uh, suppliers, um, either, you know, indirectly through distributors or directly to farmers, fishers, ranchers, artisans, whatever. Um, and so we really are in this great point where we can have influence uh, both backwards and forwards. Um, and, you know, I think it took us a little bit of time to recognize that, um, but we're certainly trying to put that into play a lot more now. Uh, for me, I think the, the thing that I'm most proud of is really, you know, trying to move that conversation uh, about scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to, to go, as I said, from the small chef-owned restaurant to, to the, those much larger organizations, um, that to me is, is you know, is very important, and, and you know, it's look. It's not like we can take credit for that. I mean, sustainability is on on everybody's lips these days. Um, we can take a little bit of credit for that, but the the pace of change just within the sustainability landscape, you know, almost to the point now where we have you know the green fatigue. Um, you know, that to me is is really impressive, and and you know, I hope that the the pace of change continues to ramp up like it has. So, Evan, I want to ask you about uh, your experience, and I'm not sure how recent it was, actually, but um, moving from Chef's Collaborative to what the James Beard Foundation is doing, you did Chef's Boot Camp uh, for Policy and Change, and now as a member of the Chef's Action Network, how does that, what was the boot camp like, and um, what sort of ongoing aspects are there from it for you? Yeah, I mean, the boot camp was a a really interesting program for me. as a, and I think for, you know, not just me, I'm sure for everyone involved, um, I think now they've graduated, you know, as I would say, uh, somewhere between like in excess of 60, maybe 80 chefs, and there are uh, at least uh, three or four more boot camps already scheduled and chefs being um, applying and recruiting for that. Um, the uh, the experience there was, was different than uh, my prior experiences in restaurants 
because as as Michael said, there's a lot of for chefs who are interested in sustainability. There's an easy path to uh, making impact through your customers um, and through your supply chain, through what you choose to buy, what you choose to serve, how you choose to sell it, and to whatever degree you choose also to inform your staff, which are um, probably the people you have the most direct contact and the most p- potential for change with. Um, you know, I think both of us, Michael and I, have both had the experience of, of being mentored or, or having our eyes open to the potential power of a chef in, in this sort of uh, food policy discussion um, by someone else and, and being able to play that role for younger cooks below you, I think is a really essential thing for, for chefs to do. Um, but attending the boot camp and being exposed to a larger kind of um, totally out of the kitchen, out of the restaurant, almost out of the supply chain approach to um, advocacy uh, and trying testing out other channels, uh, whether it be um talking to your congressional district representative or um, organizing with chefs to uh, have a larger demonstration um, on a national level um, or writing op-ed pieces or being involved in, in different um, kind of kind of this new sort of exciting um, political side of the food, um, of what the food system touches on was the focus of that. So we got actual policy training from people who work at Oxfam, you know, organizations that have experience doing these larger um, collaborative organized pushes on a certain issue from basically things like, how do you make an ask? What is an ask? You know, chef, we don't know what an ask is as a chef. You, you know how to how to get in touch with your, your farmer, but not necessarily how to t- get in touch with your politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a pretty fascinating set of skills to begin to acquire um, in, in, that, in that meeting. And is it up to you to decide what issues you, know, you want to pursue? Yeah, that's really the, the kind of uh, biggest uh, focus of, of the boot camp is that uh, it's not uncommon for chefs to be asked to support a certain issue. Um, for example, when I work with wellness in the schools or with Just Food, um, and they asked, ask me, uh, to cook for a benefit. Um, I'm like, great. I, I love your cause. I'm happy to support it. Cooking is obviously a part of my skill set. It's a great way for me to contribute, um, to this conversation, but, um, going through the boot camp and, and being encouraged to develop one's own, um, issues that we care about, whether it be, um, food worker rights or GMOs or antibiotic use in animals, um, or um, slaughterhouse um, policy or land access. There's so many There's issues. There's so many, right. Um, and usually uh, chefs jump into issues that are presented to them instead of really pursuing the ones that they may not even know they feel strongly and deeply about until they start to investigate that. Um, that was um, a very interesting um, perspective to take and has changed the way even I work with those organizations now. So instead of just cooking for a just food benefit, um, I'll, I'm working with them to help develop content for their conference. Like just taking a different angle to things uh, is has been pretty fascinating, um, kind of newly empowering. You know, mm-hmm. Beyond that, so I want to take a quick break, and then we'll be back and continue the conversation. Great, thank you. You're listening to Up in the Air by Fat Tony. Mm-hmm. 
Compton all the way home. I'm a stoner star with cotton mouth syndrome. Mind blown, been gone, cheapin' on this Maui Wowie. I got the bow loaded, the windows getting cloudy. Roll it down, pass it around, put it in the air. Let the crossing guard stare. We smoking everywhere. I'm stoned for the year. Got palms full of beer and I was on Patron. Now I gonna ever clear. I am never really here. I'm so often up there that I keep a residence in a blimp. Good year. I will smoke and kick it with no supervision. I am supposed to hit it. Need no intervention. I am so forgiving of those that ain't down to try it. But just don't be blowing my high when I'm flying by you. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com. Hi, this is Chad Pagano, former Army sniper, host of the Wild Game Domain, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network.org. Hi, everyone. You're back with Eating Matters, and today we're talking about the role of chefs in food policy. And I was just talking with Evan Hanscore, who's here from Egg in Williamsburg, um, about his experience at the Chef's Boot Camp and this advocacy skills that you learn there. So I wanted to have a follow-up on that, Evan. How Do you know yet how you anticipate using those skills? Um, not entirely, um, although one natural route um, that I've been, I've been working on, I, I studied writing um, and philosophy, actually, in, in college. Uh, so trying to use those skills, which never, like you said, literature or writing didn't necessarily <laughs> seem applicable um, to cooking or to the food world uh, as much. But um, trying to get back into writing and writing things like op-eds or, or pieces um, that can hopefully raise a awareness beyond my reach uh, or my food's reach. Um, I have one that is... I think going to end up over at the Huffington Post. Um, it's actually a response to this guy, Jay Rayner, who wrote a piece um, basically uh, urging chefs to stay in the kitchen and not get involved mm-hmm. with food policy. Obviously a position I'm not uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in line with. Um, and just pointing out examples like Michelle, uh, who you know I started working with, who is a successful chef, also a successful um, policy maker essentially who's now his organization wholesome wave as his sole focus and is as successful as to be um, to have language included in the most recent farm bill i mean that sort of transition is pretty clear proof that uh there are skills that chefs have that are uh, essentially applicable to these these larger food issues great um so i want to now ask you all uh, about maybe so we're sort of the flip side of that I think that chefs maybe, you know, as the people who are implementers in the kitchen, have uh, also a realistic take on what's achievable and what's possible. So I want to ask you about that, that role of chef as realist. And Michael, actually, in reading a little bit about your work, uh, it, it reminded me a bit of my experiences as a policymaker where you hear calls for different action and you may be very much in alignment with them, but you also have a, a pretty concrete understanding of what some of the limitations are. So how do you... Um, deal with that in terms of trying to advance a broader agenda, but also being aware of you know how long it takes to make certain types of changes. 
Um, you know, I think one of the, the things that we're trying to do now is to collaborate beyond sort of our four walls. So the collaborative is now, we're now trying to work with, you know, other organizations in the, in the sphere um, that have, you know, distinct but um, overlapping constituencies with ours. So, um, you know, I went on, I, I did the, the, um, the, the boot camp as well, and so we're trying to work more with Chef's Action Network and with Beard and with Slow Food and with Food Policy Action, and I'm sure there will be a lot more uh, like-minded organizations. Um, so, you know, the, the realist in me says, or the pessimist in me says, you know, we're fighting Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and a incredibly entrenched bureaucracy, and we can never win if we try and fight them sort of dollar for dollar. Um, but the idealist in me believes that, you know, um, as awful as awful as it sounds to, you know, me, the former punk rocker, the, the hippie ideal of if we all just work together um, is really what I think is, is the next step, and that we need to... Um, through the, the power of collaboration, I, I believe, is the only way we're going to get to that tipping point where um, sustainability really does become second nature um, and does become the operative way of doing business uh, in this country. Collaboration, definitely one of my favorite words, and I agree with you, essential in the, in the food landscape, I think, especially. But I want to ask you about things that you might be called upon to do in your restaurants and and your I think you you know you might be when you put yourself out there as a chef oh, yep. um, who's concerned about these issues it also might make you more vulnerable to you know calls of well why do you do this why are you serving that so how do you you know deal with those and then at the same time you probably have customers who want certain types of things that you're not serving for reasons right it's a broad question there but I think that you know what the first part of it is that we have there are opportunities for me to do good every day between the three restaurants now I don't know we're averaging something in the range of five or six solicitations for do this do that donate a gift certificate you know obviously we can't do everything um, and there is a lot of saying no um, and trying to concentrate within certain areas you know with you know uh, uh, about which we feel most strongly um, yeah, there. I, I, and I think that there are a lot of folks that come into my restaurants for whom sustainability is not even on the, is not something they give a damn about. Um, and they're asking, why don't you serve cod, or why don't you serve foie gras, or why don't you serve X, Y, or Z? Um, and, you know, our waitstaff is really our voice. I can't be in three kitchens at once, and I can't certainly can't be in three dining rooms as well. Um, so that we really have, there's a lot of, training of our staff that goes into selling the idea of sustainability, right? Um, so that we need, to, we need to arm them with the tools with which to have a well-reasoned and rational discussion about why we choose to do certain things and why we believe they are important. Mm -hmm. um, and so that really is, I think that's really the biggest piece of it is, is the communication um, piece. Um, and, you know, the hope is you know, we can't, we can't necessarily talk about all the things that we are doing, but we can use our menus um, as a conversation piece. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll list that we get our um, grass-fed beef and lamb from Bill and Nicolette Nyman in Bolinas, California, 
It just, you know, BN Ranch grass-fed beef or lamb on the menu. Now, some people are going to be, oh, what's this? And other people are just going to go and order the beef or the lamb. Um, same thing with listing farm names or the name of a boat off of which our fish came from that day. All of those things are designed to hopefully start a conversation and open the door for a bigger conversation about why and how we do things. Mm-hmm. Um, you and know, but uh, it, it, it doesn't always work, not by a long shot. I think something that intrigues me about chefs in this space is is being able to have that conversation, but in a way that delights the people that you're talking to and um, makes it part of the the experience of being at the restaurant, as opposed yeah. to coming over, you know, coming hitting people with a sledgehammer with your message. So, Evan, any thoughts from you on that role of balancing the limitations of what you can reasonably do in a business and um, the agenda that you want to push and how you deal with your customers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, one of the things that I think is actually kind of uniquely uh, uniquely qualifies chefs to be involved in this sort of, uh, you know, policy work of, of some sort is that we're, we're, not, we're business people, you know, we're not um, a nonprofit or an NGO. And our only route to do this work is to change someone else's mind to do something uh, in a different way. We can choose every day the way we run our business um, to support the values that we, you know, we uh, care about um, and know that we're making a difference, which is a, a fortunate position to be in because a lot of people can't know that their actions are actually um, taking root anywhere. Uh, we know that it's taking root in our restaurant and hopefully in our employees. And then that um, kind of ripple effect, uh, just like you know, throwing a stone to water, may weaken a little bit as it expands out to our customers and to our community and to our politicians and to the food chain. Um, but you, there's still some effect, um, and it's start strongest at the center. Um, so, you know, when we're trying to train cooks, um, on, uh, on learning about, uh, where we source our ingredients or when we give our employees a reading list or send them an article to look at, um, that's making an immediate change. And, and we're then in a way also kind of relieving ourselves of the sole responsibility of being change makers where we're encouraging and um, kind of empowering the people who, who work for us to take that message beyond in the way that our service staff does to our customers or our, our you know, a line cook might do to her boyfriend uh, and say like, did you know about this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, mm-hmm. and then they have Thanksgiving dinner at his house and like, we've got to buy this kind of meat. You know, we, we can't eat this. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, to use the overused term, like real change. Um, and of course that's slow change, but, uh, that's going to be the fact of, of the battle. Um, and I think we can at least be somewhat satisfied to start there. So I want to ask you both um, another question about the types of issues that chefs have often been at the fore of. You hear a lot, um, I see a lot of chefs who are, who are working to promote different values around the food system, talking about hunger issues and certainly talking about sustainability issues. What are your thoughts about the role of chefs in talking about health and um Overconsumption of things that are bad for your health. I, I'm not sure that you see as much of that. Do you think it's? It, but it's certainly an important part of the broader food system functionality conversation. So, where do you see chefs fitting into that? I mean, I think increasingly yeah. um, chefs have a have an important role in that. Um, you know, you hear this kind of off-quoted. Uh, I, I don't know if you'd even call it a statistic, but fact that chefs are the the most trusted voice for most uh, consumers after. Uh, doctors as far as health goes and with that kind of respect on, on a, any topic particularly health um, I think the responsibility is certainly there um, and you see a lot of chefs um, I think starting to lead a little bit more on that issue 
I feel like it's a little bit touchier of an issue for, for um, chefs to deal with because, uh, again, like you said, you have to approach in a way that doesn't feel preachy. You have to excite towards health in the way that you excite towards sustainability. Um, but I think even at the base level of buying quality ingredients, you're making a step in that direction. And then, of course, how you design your menu, the way you choose to feature, how heavily you choose to feature meat or fish versus vegetables Portions. or grains. Portion size, exactly. <laughs> um, the way your menu is structured and the way you encourage people to order. Um, all those things have a potential for, I think, increasing that role. Um, and I hope I hope to see you know more, more chefs taking advantage of that. Michael, you have, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I would I would agree with a lot of that. I also think though that you know, over over time, you know, the the at least my definition of sustainability has really broadened from just that environmental, you know, to economic, uh, both micro and macro, to uh, both social and biodiversity, social justice, and also health impacts. Um, you know, you can't you can't just be focusing on one one of those pillars. Right, they are all uh, inextricably intertwined um, in our food system, and you, we need to be in part addressing all of them. With that being said, look, you know we have, I have restaurants, you know, that, you know some that are very, some that are casual, and you know one that's very fine dining, and you know the, you know some people are coming out, they want to splurge, you know. Um, I'm not necessarily going to begrudge them. You know, the first mm-hmm. r- rule of running a sustainable restaurant is keep your doors open mm-hmm. um, so that, you know, there are, there are some financial realities. You know, it's not like we, it, we're not running a health food restaurant. Um, but by putting the right ingredients on the plate, we're certainly doing uh, a lot more than most folks out there. Um, you know, we have the opportunity to, you know, order the big steak if you want. Um, but it's going to be grass-fed, um, you know. The I think I think, I, even, I, I think that sorry. I was going to say even you know just the fact of making you know when people want to go out and splurge, bringing a sense of pleasure and in a way like exclusivity or rarity to a big meal like that is a healthful thing to do, mm-hmm. and and making sure that people understand that eating this big steak is a, is a, a pretty special and, and shouldn't be a, like a, re- a regular thing um, right. and bringing pleasure back to food making people thoughtful about what they eat will ho- you know hopefully have an effect where people aren't eating thoughtlessly or carelessly or throwing right. you know packaged food into their right. hopefully house. that carries yeah. that carries forth into you know carries uh, forward from our restaurant out into the rest of their existence yeah, you know yeah. that they're left with something that oh you know I had this incredible incredible thing and you know it was it was really expensive or it was really and or really delicious and it's not an everyday thing but god it was really good right um you know and and then also you know just we 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 certainly have changed the um especially here at lumiere we we have changed the product mix we are cooking healthier we are cooking cleaner than you know certainly 16 years ago when there was a lot more uh butter involved in the equation and you know we are trying to do things uh, a little differently i think that's an evolution but i think that you mm-hmm. know um there are a lot of uh, a lot of us chefs who are really trying to be out in front of that mm-hmm. um you know um it's uh yeah that's what you know, we it's moving we Sorry? we watch a lot of sunday afternoon uh cooking shows in my household especially in the winter and 
my 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 husband and my son were watching last week, and I came home and they told me about seeing like the ex- the stick of butter go in, you know, to the end of every <laughs> recipe, and right. and that is, I think, um, you know, a stereotype. So it's interesting to hear you talk about that that evolution. And and we're almost out of time, but I just want to ask you each one last question, uh, which is about your own eating habits, because I'm always curious about this for people who are who are really thoughtful about food. Um, and whether or not it's impacting how you eat. So, Evan, tell me, does what you know about food affect what, what you eat? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I my girlfriend uh, tells a story of the, she says the one time I made her angry, but I don't think it's true. Um, there have been many <laughs> times. Uh, but I came home, you know, from work one day, and I was like, hey, just so you know, I'm not going to eat any meat if I don't know where it comes from. Um, and it's amazing how deeply held people's, you know, food is to people's identity and their psyches and how, how shaken that can make someone. She's like, well, are you going to judge me? Like if I eat me for like, well, now I can't eat it. And it, and it feels like all this pressure. Um, it ultimately became a great thing. And that's what she wanted to, to do as well. Um, but by, you know, it, I think seeing, seeing the way food works and working with it every day certainly changes mm-hmm. the way you interact with food. So I eat far less meat at home probably than I even do at work like snacking on a piece of bacon here or there <laughs> um I think I tend to eat pretty healthily you know I'll go to the green market uh, on my morning off you know on Sundays and buy stuff and try to make stuff for the week partly out of time you know partly out of um you know belief in the value of that uh, it doesn't exclude me from you know eating peanut butter M&Ms or like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich you know and a beer at night I for mean, dinner once in a while we're less than a but... week after Halloween so <laughs> <Yeah>. let's <laughs> but uh, I think it certainly has has a deep and, and lasting impact and more excitingly I just had a like a kind of review with one of my cooks yesterday he's like I started making scrambled eggs at home. I never used to like them, but now I've learned how to make them properly. And I bought these great eggs from the store and they taste so much better. And when you hear that, you hear the impact that it's having on, mm-hmm. like Michael said, your employees and your consu- your customers' lives after they leave your restaurant. That's a that's a pretty exciting change to make um, to, to catalyze that through mm-hmm. something you've served them in your walls and, and have it carry on outwards. Um, I think it's a change that, you know, most uh, chefs who care about these issues would hope, would hope to make. So... Um, Hopefully it is the case. Yeah. How about you, Michael? Do you have time to eat thoughtfully? Uh, yeah, you know, it, 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 a lot of you know a lot of the, what we eat at home is is brought from the restaurants, so it, that that sort of makes it easy. Um, but there is an awful lot of thoughtful shopping that goes on for what we eat at home. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the problem is, you know, there are certain types of food that I really love where you can't find, you know, local sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm waiting for someone to, you know, start doing local sustainable dim sum. <laughs> um, and so you, you have to have certain disconnects if you want to enjoy certain things. Um, that's and a while great example, that's, actually. Yeah. What? That's a great example of right? certain so, kinds you of... Know, I, I, I have jokingly referred to it many times as, you know, for me, because, uh, you know, I just I want a different palette of flavors on my days off. Mm-hmm. Right, so I have what I jokingly refer to, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but the Asian food disconnect. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if I want to go for Thai food or if I want to go for Chinese, I don't have a lot of options. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know what? Tough. <laughs> I'll eat a lot more vegetables at those places now than I will before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, but we we still go out for that stuff, and, and you can't. No one can be perfectly pure, and and if you probably could, 
I, I wouldn't want to know you. Right, right. So <laughs> right? If, you would be an awfully boring person. <laughs> so um, if that doesn't exist somewhere, that product line, then we did not need to go to a beach to have a great idea. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to thank both Michael Levitin, the owner and chef at Lumiere and other Boston restaurants, and Evan, Han- Evan Hanscore, the chef at Egg here in Williamsburg. Uh, it's been really great to have a conversation with both of you, and I appreciate you joining me on the show today. Thanks, Kim. Uh, Thank you very, very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, everyone, for listening to today's show. This has been Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. The show is available for download on iTunes and Stitcher, where you can also leave comments, and we'd love to hear your feedback. I'm Kim Kessler, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.